Hello, my name is Tom Chick. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast, where we talk to the people who make the forum what it is, about the games that matter to them. As you might be able to tell, this is our very special January Halloween edition. (laughs) (laughs) And I have with me uh, Chris Hornbostel. I I did do that right, right? I didn't butcher it last minute. You you nailed it, dude. Now, you guys don't know him as Chris Hornbostel. You guys know him as Trigger Cut. Uh, And, gosh, you've been around. Like, you've been around forever on the forum, haven't you? Yeah, you know, I hit a couple of posts on the old blue boards. uh, And most of the people – I mean, I remember – on Usenet, when uh, you it was announced that uh, you and Mark were starting up quarter to three, and and so, so that's how you're one of the guys who first came over at the inception of quarter to three. You are you are an OG, kinda. Yeah, there were people who have much more of a claim to being OG than I because uh, I didn't actually register for the new boards until the summer of 2003. I want to say okay, but in the first round. Now, why on earth? Would you register as Trigger Cut when you have this amazingly distinct last name? <laughs> well, you know, if I register with my first name and my last initial, which I, I didn't know how many Chris's there were, but it, there seemed to be more Chris's in the world than anything else. If I register with my first name and last initial, it actually looks like Chris. <laughs> like you have a list. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, eh, no, that not so much that. And I always posted on at uh, a couple of other forums and on Usenet as trigger cut. So which goes back to trying to find a unique username when I first signed up for my very first ISP in 1994 with Earthlink. Wow. Wow. So and yeah. now what exactly is a trigger cut? It's the name of a pavement song, the band Pavement, and it was after trying about 15 different na- variations of Chris and H and Numbers, and I finally got frustrated and said, all right, what song is playing right now? Trigger Cut? Great. That's my – and it took it, and the rest, there you go. Now, really, is it that random, or do you actually really, really dig the song? I, I do like the song, and it happened to be playing at that time. But, yeah, that one decision in 1994 or 1995 seems to have carried forward about 15 years. Okay, now, now Chris, a very special guest for the listeners. You have promised that you were going to do an a cappella rendition of the Pavement Song Trigger Cut for us. Right now, take it away. <laughs> <laughs> really? You actually want people to listen, right? <laughs> You want people to stay tuned in, right? I just wondered how you would react if I threw you on the spot like that. Uh, now, okay, so, but your actual last name, and I can't get over this, Chris, Hornbostel? That is That's awesome. It. That's a good Midwestern German name. Oh, man, I, I, we never had that in Arkansas where I grew up. I'm going to start using that for all of my Lord of the Rings online characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, growing up, you always talk about how uh, you took a lot of grief, and I can understand that for being, you know, your last name, Chick. Right. But every variation of horny. Ah, uh, yes, right. You know, horn dog. Right. Uh, the best nickname I ever got was playing when I played uh, high school baseball. And I hit a bat, I hit batters in two straight games, mostly because I was kind of weirdly competitive and got all kind of freaked out and decided that I was going to actually try to hit people. And uh, one of the players on our team, 
rearranged the letters of my name and started calling me Born Hostel. Nice. <laughs> and every time I think that should have been my forum name right there, that should have been the one. Now, does so like most German names, I would assume that this actually means something. Like, you, is that somebody what you call someone who makes horns, or what is a horn bostel? All we can figure is that the horn part is probably mountain and bostel. Go figure. Wow, that's awesome. What a great linguistic mystery. Uh, okay, good. Sure, sure. Good. Now, you uh, you live in, uh, you're out there on the East Coast, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yep, I'm in the D.C. area. I live in uh, the northern Virginia suburbs of uh, D.C. And you own a restaurant, that's correct? I manage a restaurant. Somebody else owns it, but I manage it. Oh, okay. So I was going to float a theory that you used to be a criminal, and you went on one last big heist, and with the money you made, you went and opened a restaurant. So you're still in the pre-owning stages, I see. Uh, so yeah, yeah. now, uh, what can can we plug this restaurant? Is that okay to do? Sure. Because no. people on I understand people on quarter three already have outed your restaurant and have actually met you there. That's correct, yes, right? Yes. Okay. That is correct. As a matter of fact, we hosted a quarter to three get together there on Saturday, mm-hmm. and uh, we had. Uh, Troy and Alec and El Guapo. Uh, we had waiter and secretary. We had Zerok, who I hope I'm pronouncing his forum handle right, and Mike O'Malley. Mm-hmm. That's his forum handle, is Mike O'Malley. Of those uh, – oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Of those people, who was the rowdiest? Who came closest to getting thrown out? Nobody really did. Uh, El Guapo is – Definitely everything you would think El Guapo would be <laughs> by his forum post. So he's a very, very witty fellow. Everybody's a very witty fellow. I, I laughed. I put in uh, our little thread about our get-together that I can't remember laughing that much and that hard uh, with a group of people as much as I did uh, you know, Saturday night. We had a great time. Was that the first time you had met any of them? Like had you met any of them before? I hadn't met any of them before. There are other people from the forum who I have met in person. R.R. Uh, R. Morton, uh, Freezer, uh, let's see, 8-Ball. Um, there's another El Guapo from the D.C. area who I think just moved back to Boston who also posts at Octopus Overlords. Uh, and this is my second El Guapo from the D.C. area dining at uh, Jay Gilbert's, which is my restaurant. What, what, now, what kind of restaurant is Jay Gilbert's? It is a steakhouse that also does seafood very well. And did the folks who showed up on Saturday, because of your, your role there, did they get any sort of preferential treatment? Yeah, yeah. We, nice. We got the two best waiters in the house, and we got uh, a very swank private room. And why weren't those of us who live in Los Angeles invited to this gathering? You know, we put up the D.C. thread thing. And anyone who comes to DC, you know, fair enough. <laughs> I blame I blame Troy. Go ahead and, he's not here, so let's just blame Troy. And that Troy, that guy can get out of hand. I'm glad he didn't get rowdy. You, get, you give him a little gin, and oh boy, you're gonna have to call the bouncers. Yeah. Actually, Troy Troy is great. He starts off very quiet when you first meet him, and then once you wind him up and get him going, oh yeah, he's yeah. great. Yeah, Troy is good that way. Uh, so, what, how did you come to be the manager of this restaurant? Well, uh, the company that owns it, I waited tables for them right after I got out of college uh, while I was trying to make it as a freelance writer and while I was working at a record store and uh, doing some freelance music writing. And eventually I realized that a job is a job no matter how cool it sounds. 
you know, it's still work. And I realized that the work that I was doing at the restaurant, I was just as good at, and it was still just as much work as going to my cooler sounding jobs. And I went, you know what? It would be kind of cool not to worry about paying rent and uh, worrying about like rent and bills and stuff like that. I should probably go into management. So <laughs> I think that's part and parcel with like growing up and learning that whole yeah, responsibility. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you know what? It's, it's time. So yeah, about, what- uh, 12 years ago, I went into management side of things. Uh, and is this something you enjoy doing? Is it a nightmare? What, what's it like being the manager of a restaurant? Uh, you know what? It's mostly fun. It's, uh, it's crazy. Uh, it's a job for an adrenaline junkie. Um, I just absolutely – I chug coffee all day at work. When I get <laughs> home from work, I have to have a glass of wine just to – wind down my nerves so I can go to bed. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those kind of jobs, especially if I have to get up and work, go into work early the next morning. It's like, okay, I've got to just calm myself down here because, yeah, I've been, may have drunk about three or four pots of coffee. Now, do, you think, do, do things ever go terribly wrong? They must. Like, what, what's an example of when things go terribly wrong at work and they fall apart and the adrenaline junkie part of the job kicks in? Like, like, obviously, you have things like, oh, so and so waiter didn't show up today. I guess that I'm right, guessing right. that's like a that's minor. That's common. Yeah, right. that's that's minor. What are the um, huge, big, uh, big things like where, where everything blows up and you're just putting fires out? Oh, you know, uh, I think the very worst one. Uh, my original management job with this company was at a restaurant in suburban Chicago in uh, the Oak Brook Mall area. And on Mother's Day, our new general manager decided that he wanted to get really aggressive about booking parties. And this was my last day there before I transferred to Northern Virginia. Um, And he created a bunch of reservation spaces for tables we didn't have. And we basically filled up the restaurant in 20 minutes. We were seating tables with reservations over an hour after the reservation time. And the kitchen was taking normally, you know, their part time on entree tickets is about 20 minutes. And food was going out in 45 minutes to an hour per table if we were lucky. So there were a lot of fun table visits and what a great send off for your last day on the job. Angry Chicagoans, you know, telling you off in the way that only angry (laughs) Chicagoans can tell you off on a mother's day. Yeah, it was a good time. (laughs) Uh, So I'm guessing you probably in your free time don't play a lot of diner dash. Yeah, no, no (laughs) desire. Uh, The guy who did the, uh, gosh, the capitalism games did a restaurant sim game Uh a couple of, like five or six years ago, Trevor, Trevor Chan, Trevor Chan. Yeah. He did a restaurant sim and I picked that up and I think I made it through about 10 minutes of the tutorial. And I was like, no, 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 no. I could have pictured you starting to get cold sweats and maybe shakes. You know, I, I say that, but it actually is a fun job. Uh, there's it's, it's, it's an exciting job. It's always interesting. Uh, you meet famous people, you meet interesting people. Uh, today, uh, Roger Mudd, the former CBS. Oh yeah. uh, Anchorman. He lives down the road from us and, uh, he stopped by and he still has the famous Roger Mudd voice, which is Awesome to hear, like him ask uh, for an, another diet coke. <laughs> so, it's like great, that's awesome. Now, when yeah. someone like that comes in, do you acknowledge that they're famous, or do you treat them 
just like everyone else. Like, like here's a dilemma I have living in Los Angeles. When you see somebody who's famous, part of you wants to acknowledge that and, and really say, hey, you know, I really enjoyed seeing you on the news. But then part of you is like, you know, they probably get bugged all the time. I'm just going to treat them like any other person. Well, what is your, as the manager, what is your approach when someone famous like that comes in? Basically make sure that they get to have their dinner and their, you know, with their family the way you would want anybody else mm-hmm. to do that. But also, especially with somebody like Roger Mudd, who's 82 and he's been retired and probably not a whole lot of people nowadays recognize him. You do. I did want, you know, I said, oh, you know, Roger, I read your book that came out a couple of years ago. and I thought it was very interesting and he enjoyed that. You know, he, I think he enjoyed that kind of give and take. Yeah, that's good. Just sort of pay him the compliment and leave him right, alone. And like, then yeah. let, let him go eat dinner with his family and enjoy that and not have to worry about, you know, any crap, other right. crap. Right. Uh, and now you are, so I don't, I'm not a big music guy, so I don't really explore a lot yeah, of those threads, but you're like I'm a total music, music nerd. Like you are with yeah, music oh, the way yeah. I am with movies, I assume. Yeah, uh, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a disease. And now how does this come about from working in a record store? Yeah. Uh, I worked in a record store briefly in high school, uh, did six years, five or six years of college radio, uh, ah, did yeah. In- did an internship for uh, Sony Music, did an internship that I had to lie to get to work for RCA because um, I what? wasn't in college. At, I was done with college at the time by that point. But Oh, you had to lie and say you were still a student? Yeah. That kind of thing. yeah. Right, right. Which, which was fun. They didn't find out. And, <laughs> uh, then I worked for an independent uh, music promotions company for, gosh, about eight months or so. Uh, and then working in a record store for seven, five years, five, five, seven years. Now, I don't I don't know. So how old are you, if I may ask? I am one of the oldsters. I'm 43. OK, so you're my age. So here's the deal that I'm curious about, Chris. OK, I'm 43. I know what music I like and I tend to listen to that. And every now and then, very rarely, I'll find a new musician and I'll I'll sort of add that to my playlist. Like, sure. like music for me isn't something that I'm that interested in going out and, and finding new stuff. And I, I don't know if that's just my, if it's because I'm old or if it's just a distinct thing for me. I'm assuming it's a little different with you and you like exploring new music, right? Absolutely. Um, honestly, for me, that feels like my only defense against getting old is <laughs> I don't want to be, you know, it's like, man, I know I am getting older. But when I get to the point where I'm like, music was better when I was when I was a teenager, you know, I don't want to get, you know, you kids get off my lawn, you know, (laughs) there are no Jane's addiction. You know, I don't want to get to that stage (laughs) in my life where, you know, I'm yelling at kids, you know, they're 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 no they're no pixies. (laughs) But now, wouldn't you wouldn't you acknowledge that that is something that tends to happen when folks get older is their taste in music gets fossilized and they know what they like and they don't really explore beyond that. Uh, so, so do you have to actively counter that, or does that come natural oh, to you? I, I, I think about that. I honestly, when I listen to new music, I'm like, if I don't like something, the first thing that pops into my head, do I not like this because I'm turning into a grumpy old man? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's always like the first thing that goes to my head. Is that why I'm not getting this? And I think what it is is more than getting old, I think it's a frame of reference thing. If you're listening to music that you don't have a frame of reference for, it's very difficult to get into it. Now, when you say frame of reference, do you mean like someone like me going to listen to hip-hop or something? Uh, like, well, like, 
you know, even something like that's fairly new, like Mastodon. Okay, you know what? I get it. That's you know based around the metal that I listened to back in the eighties. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I get that. I have a frame of reference to get that. But then I'll listen to a band like the Dirty Projectors, and you know, I'll listen to it. And I'll say, I don't get this. And my first thought is, do I not get this because I don't have a frame of reference for it? And then eventually I come around to say, no, no, I don't get this because there's other stuff that they've done that I actually don't have a frame of reference for that I enjoyed. But this new album just kind of, that emperor's got no clothes. Mm -hmm. And how do you find new music? Uh, You know what? I've got so many friends who are into music including people who post on quarter to three, mm-hmm. that I figure if somebody bothers to tell me about a record or a band or if somebody posts about them online, if somebody takes the time to do that, that clearly whatever music that they're posting about made an impact with them, and if it's music that makes an impact with somebody, that's probably worth at least giving a couple of songs to listen to. Well, then let me ask you this. How much are you digging Birthday Party Massacre? Wow. You know what? I gave that a try. I swear I gave that a try. That, that was kind of mean of me, I, I confess. That, 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 was, that was a little bit catty, but you know what? I gave that an honest try, and I went, this is – and you know what? Honestly, I even when I don't like something – I realize that I'm not a music critic. I'm more of a music evangelist. If I hear something I like, I want to tell everybody about it. If I hear something I don't like, I tend to just not say anything about it because I figure, "Eh, you know, who am I to say what's good and what's bad? I know what I like and I don't, and I love to share what I like with other people. But if I don't like it, they don't need to hear that from me. But with something like the birthday, with birthday party massacre, if that keeps getting pushed in my face, eventually I'm just like, okay, I'm I'm letting fly now. I'm going to turn into the bitchy record store critic or record store clerk from 1996, and now you're going to get it, and I'm I'm going to be a jerk. Well, and I'm so. still not entirely convinced that uh, I think it's Shadari who's doing that, yes. but I'm still not entirely convinced he's not pulling our legs. <laughs> I, it, it would be a great performance art piece. <laughs> Uh, so tell us well you know what just tell me I am curious as someone who only likes like what I like and, and I don't get out much when it comes to new music give me three new musicians three like musicians that you've discovered recently who you think are really cool who you would recognize, rec- recommend to anyone with uh, any sort of appreciation of music what, what are three new things that you've okay. discovered um, three new things I'll give you three new bands yep. uh, there's a band from the UK called the Leisure Society who plays a very acoustic, almost, you'd call it chamber pop, but it's also very UK folkish. There's a difference between British folkish folk music and American folk music. American folk music is like Cornfields and the Ozarks <laughs> and stuff like that. British folk music is sort of suggests people in capes. Uh, <laughs> And so this is more like capey folk music, but it very it totally works. It's, it's I, great stuff. That characterization alone, Chris, is all I need. Capey folk music is great. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so yeah. Leisure Society, who are two more? Leisure, or it's probably the Leisure Society since they are British. Uh, there's a band from Detroit. It's actually a husband and wife team called The Hard Lessons. Uh, the wife has a great voice. She sounds uh, 
she can actually sing soul music, which is kind of cool for a white girl. Uh, they do a lot of they do the kind of a garage rock thing, but with a more soulful twist. Um, and they're fantastic. Okay. I think that's one of my favorite records from the past year. Um, and then let's go with uh, let's go with Richard Hawley. Like H A W L E Y. H A W L E Y. Okay. And what's he like? How would you characterize Richard Hawley? Uh, Richard Hawley is doing kind of a. He's got an amazing voice. It sounds like what you would get if Roy Orbison sang in a baritone. Okay. <laughs> and it's very much informed by mainstream pop that your parents used to listen to, uh, very much informed by, you know, Frank Sinatra and stuff like that, but also a lot of Gene Pitney. And then he updates it into the modern era with some pretty dark lyrics, especially on his new record, which he wrote after the death of his father. Uh, And he used to be a guitar player in a couple of punk bands. Uh, He was in a band. He played guitar in a band called Pulp that people might recognize, a Brit pop band. Uh, back in the 90s. Okay. So great. Now there let me go. let me throw out at you something that uh, I, like by I the said, way, Mike Oldfield Tubular Bells was the uh, theme tonight, correct? Very good. But you know what, everyone? Nobody knows that is Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells. You realize? Do you yeah, know what? It's, it's the Exorcist. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Which is kind of a shame. If I was Mike Oldfield, I'd be sitting around <laughs> all the time going, "Fuck! Come on!" <laughs> you have no idea how many times somebody has come into a record store and tried to hum like that. that <laughs> particular theme song and we have to guess what record that is and then find it for them so yeah you know that was actually pretty easy i'm like oh i know what record song that is cool. or mike oldfield uh now i just want to throw out this is the only thing i've discovered in i don't know the last year or so and for all i know she's so obscure and no one's even heard of her but i i'm just loving so th- there's a i saw a movie recently and they played one of her songs in the end credits and that's generally how i discover music like sure, like well, i'm that's a great way and and i'm a huge elliot smith fan i adore elliot smith and i'm right. so grateful i got to see him before he died but the only reason i know elliot smith and i feel so cheap and superficial for this is is because they played an elliot smith song not even in that uh that matt damon gus van sant movie what the heck was that uh about the oh. mathematician janitor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting, right? So Elliot Smith was nominated for an Academy Award right, for right. that song, but I only know him to from... see him at the Oscars. By the way, performing that song. Well, yeah, you know, and it's this classic. I mean, that right there is Elliot Smith in a nutshell. Is is kind of out of place and ill at ease amongst all these people who really admire what he's doing, and he just really doesn't feel like he fits there. And uh, you know, it, it, it's a it's a beautiful image. You know, him right, suddenly right. getting all this recognition and and not really sure what to do with it um but i only know about him from uh royal tenenbaums there's an sure. song in that so i'm like that's an awesome song i'm gonna listen to it i'm gonna find out what that's from and from that discovering this you know this amazing man in his music um so so here's someone i've discovered recently i have no idea if anyone has ever even heard of her uh so i'm gonna okay. throw a name at you it's maybe a challenge i don't know uh sure sure have you ever heard of a woman named nina nastasia is that really no. You, okay. You, you stumped the band. Well, I, I'm I'm pretty sure she's like she's like a New York folk singer, and I imagine she's got okay. like four albums out. She's uh, I think one of her claim to fames. Do you know who Dirty Three is? Yes. Yes. Okay. So there's a fellow from Dirty Three who like one of the guys went on and he's doing a lot of soundtrack music, and I think one of them is a fellow named Jim White, and Jim White has yeah, played. Yeah, the, I know Jim White. Okay. Well, he's he has promoted Nina Nastasia, and they did an album together. Ah, okay. Um. 
so she's kind of just this folk music that I've discovered recently. And have I, it's only because, here's me being superficial again, because I saw a movie that had one of her songs in the end credits. And so it's, it's – uh, Oh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I was going to say, so it's just like with Elliot Smith is that I, I have no idea like how how well-known no, that is or where she fits. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, Elliot Smith is – it's it's crazy. A guy like Elliot Smith sells a gajillion records, and nobody actually – all of his fans are like, oh, he's this obscure guy. I'm like, no, everybody knows Elliot Smith. I have friends who have a child named Elliot after Elliot Smith, wow. actually. Uh, yeah. Now, since he's died, though, or I, – I mean- uh, It was actually – I think Elliot was born before his namesake was dead. Wow, wow. But yeah, mom was a big fan, so there you go. Uh, all right. So, uh, good. I appreciate these three recommendations. Now, uh, do you know why I played Tubular Bells at the beginning of the podcast? Well, because it's Halloween in January. There you go. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, a very scary series of games, probably uh, focusing on one very, the kind of the pinnacle of the series so far, I guess. Now, why would you pick? Well, first of all, before we talk about your specific pick, um, what do you think it takes to make a good horror game and i ask this as a loaded question because i think it's really hard video games tend to be about empowerment and and a lot of horror is being vulnerable in a way i almost right. think of them as as uh diametrically opposed uh so what would you say chris it takes to make a good horror game well i think that's the kind of the key to the whole thing uh i don't do you remember a game that came out gosh i want to say 2000, 2001, called Nocturne. It was a computer, it was a PC game, kind of an action-adventure game. That sounds uh, so familiar. Oh, my gosh. What Do you remember who made it? It was the company that made the Fly series of flight simulators, um, which I, gosh. I Terminal wish I Reality? Yeah, that's who did it. Yep. And was Nocturne uh, like a, a first-person shooter perspective? I, don't, I remember the it name. Was, it was over-the-shoulder, third-person it was over the shoulder of the main character, um, and it had, you know, these set. The game was actually three separate set pieces. One was in old Chicago. One was in Transylvania. Um, gosh, I'm trying to remember where the other one was. And that doesn't ring any bells. And and was that? And a- then they they had two expansions that were based on the Blair Witch Project uh, license. Oh, you mean you mean those developers did the Blair Witch games? They did well. They did, yeah. They did two games that were loosely based on Blair Witch Project. Okay, and, and, and was and was Nocturne an example? You think of a, of a good horror game? No, it, I was going to say it's an example of one of the things you were talking about. Your main character that you control in Nocturne is a total badass. He kills everything, and as good as some of the atmospherics and the camera work were for you know that era, the Games themselves, well, they didn't have much going for story, for one thing. But the mm-hmm. other thing they didn't have going for them is a sense of being scared about anything. It was just like, oh, there's another, you know, oh, there's more zombies. Let me, you know, I'm going to splatter them. Right, right. You know, and oh, look, here comes another vampire. I'm going, I'm going to kill that vampire because, you know, they had the, you know, the gall to send just one after me instead of ten. Right. <laughs> um and I, it didn't, you know, I remember I really liked the game when it first came out and for like the first three or four hours that I played. And then I thought, 
this could be just a generic action game, and even at that, it's not as good as other action games that are out there. Well, and it, what it makes me think of, Chris, is so many uh, putatively horror video games. Are, are there other types of games that just have horror skins on them? Like right. I, I think back to, and this was a fantastic game, but I don't really think of it as horror so much as it had vague horror themes. I think of the Blood, the first, uh, the Blood series, and specifically the first Blood game uh, was was very good, and it was an awesome way to to shoot horror themed things. Sure. But it didn't have any of the trappings of horror, and it certainly wasn't scary. Um, right. And honestly, and this is probably going to sound like uh, blasphemy, but uh, Resident Evil 4, which is to date still the only Resident Evil game I've actually finished, mm-hmm. is – I enjoyed it. I had a great time playing it. I played it all the way through to the end, but it didn't necessarily need to be zombies and it didn't need, necessarily need to be a Resident Evil game. Right. You know, it – there was never a point where there was that real creeping f- feeling of dread that you get with Fatal Fr- with the Fatal Frame series that we want to talk about. Right, and and here so here's another example too. I think of a of a game that's been relatively successful and it's widely recognized as a horror game, but I I think like Resident Evil Four uh, misses the point entirely. I think of the Fear games. Yeah. Where you're playing yeah. a first-person shooter, and every now and then it's kind of creepy, and then sometimes something will startle you. And that, right, right there, that is not – and even Dead Space. I don't know if you played Dead Space, Chris. I did. I did. Uh, and and it's, it's a matter of, look, let's be creepy, and let's have something jump out at you sometime, but then the rest of the time you're just playing a shooter against monsters. Huh? Yeah, I call it the difference between being scared and being startled. Yes, exactly. Uh, I, I think there's a difference there, and I think it's very easy to do the startled thing. It's very, it's tough to do the scared thing, and I think that's one of the things I actually wanted to talk about because I do have some ideas for what fatal, the Fatal Frame series, or the, the developers, the Project Zero folks mm-hmm. do that I would love to see actual you know, horror movie directors kind of learn from. Oh, well, you know what? I want. I'm going to make a note. I want to get back to that. But, but okay. Uh, first, tell me then what makes the Fatal Frame games successful. Uh, what, what, why do you want to talk about these? Well, um, they are the game that you know. They're I, I've loved playing, trying to play a horror video game on the computer or console or whatever. Mm-hmm. Since I think Lurking Fear was the Infocom uh, text adventure. <laughs> wow, that yeah. by the way, Chris, serious old. There we go. Uh, yeah, I, I've just dated myself. Um, I played uh, Microprose had a game called Legacy that I played. I remember playing Seventh Guest. I remember playing the first Phantasmagoria game, <laughs> wow. uh, Shivers. You know, and through all these, I'm like, you know. You'd get little bits where you're like, oh, this is about to get really good. This is about to get really scary. And then it just couldn't follow through. So I played the first Fatal Frame game and actually gave up fairly early in it, but I was scared. Mm -hmm. And then the second one came out, and the second one was a little more forgiving for people who are terrible at action games, which – Describes me to a T. Um, it was a little more forgiving, and it had a lot more gradual learning curve as far as the controls and the what I would call the combat system, even though it's not really combat. And that was okay. Now, now I'm hooked, and that was the game that 
you know, I would play and, you know, after about an hour or so, you just have to stop playing mm-hmm. because it's, it gets so intense. And you realize that you're responding to the game almost the way you would expect the characters to. You realize that your heart rate is going 90 miles an hour and that you've got goosebumps and that you're, you know, you're breathing faster and everything else. You're like, okay, this something there's some connection being made there and then you find it you talk online and people who have played it are always saying oh yeah yeah that's this series is a cut above you know the other there are other games that say they're horror games this is the real deal and what makes it that why is it different well i think the thing there it's their game constructs in there there's not one little magic bullet there are a bunch of little things that it does very well um you know if i can talk about one of the things that i noticed especially just remembering from the second and third games um anytime there's something for you to find in the game instead of playing hunt the pixel like you do in a traditional adventure game where you have to kind of mouse over everything. In these games, it kind of glows. There's like a little white glowy speck on the floor or on a windowsill or something like that. And it sparkles and shines and you, you really can't miss it. Mm-hmm. And you think, I have to walk over there and get that. Well, the game designers know that you are going to walk over there and they know basically what path you're going to take to cross the room or cross the hallway or whatever it is to get to that thing, whatever it is. It might be medicine to heal your character. It might be more film, which is actually ammo for your camera. Uh, it might be a scrap or a, of paper that is a clue for the mystery that you're in. But as you cross over there, they know what path you're going to take, and they figure out basically this is how we're going to we're going to come up with something because we know you're going to fall or we know you're going to follow this path to get there, and we're going to come up with something that we're going to do to you while you walk that path. And so it gives you, the player, the illusion of this freedom that you're moving, but it allows them to do an almost cutscene-like set piece based on the path that they know that you're going to take. Right, without taking control away from you and making right. you feel like you're watching a movie instead of actually in the right. situation. Exactly. Because what they'll do is they'll switch the camera so you feel like you're walking towards the camera, but you're controlling yourself as you walk towards the camera. Then the other thing they do is they show you things that your character can't see. They'll show you the ghost popping up behind you. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. They'll show you coming down a hallway where there's an open door where you can see the room that you're walking towards, and they'll pop a ghost into that room that your character hasn't seen yet because they haven't come down the hall to where that doorway is and turned into that doorway. And you're like, oh, whoa, okay, you know, and that's just – it's little things like that I think that add up. Uh, it's got great sound, whoever did the um, – Music, I guess you would call it music, uh, beds that play in there, did a fantastic job with that as well. Mm-hmm. And the, I, the sound is outstanding. Mm-hmm. And that, now you mentioned the film and the film being like ammo and the camera here is the closest equivalent you have to a gun. I think a very important part of what makes Fatal Frame also work is that it's not the conventional video game trope. Like Silent Hill, for all of its the wondrous stuff that the Silent Hill games did. I hated how it devolved into whacking a zombie with a crowbar, uh, and it becomes a combat game, which relates to all these other video games. 
I love that Fatal Frame never does that. You know, it has right. a completely separate conceit for what we call combat. Um, right. Yeah, you are. You basically can't necessarily kill anything. You have to capture them with a camera. Right. <laughs> you don't have a gun, and the camera, I guess, works kind of like the traps in uh, the Ghostbusters movie where... Oh, I can't believe you're reducing it to that. <laughs> but well, you're right, it, you're right. <laughs> you know, it basically, it captures and pulls the ghost in, and the closer you let the ghost get to you before you take the picture of it, the more damage you do to the ghost before you can finally capture it and pull it in. Which, in and of itself, Chris, is an amazing... I mean, whoever thought that up is brilliant for, for a couple of reasons. Um you can't just hang back and, and snipe at something. I mean, right. there's going to be something scary in front of you. And what's more, you've got to get close to it. And what's more, you've got to look really closely at it. Uh, yes. So they force you again. It's like them knowing where you're going to walk to pick up the sparkly bit. They know where you're going to be looking because you have to look there or, in order to defeat it. And it lets them do things like have a, a ghost chick with hair in her face and so they right. know you're going to have to get up close to her face so that when the hair parts and the scary demon face comes out, you're going to be right in there looking at it. Um, right. it it's such a brilliant conceit for, for drawing. Well, that a- and they know that, you know, you're going to have to actually even stand there and let the thing come rushing at you. And it's almost like a game of chicken that you're playing. How yes. long am I going to wait before I finally go, OK, I, I got to snap this picture right now? Yeah, exactly. This great risk reward sort of tension is yeah. Yeah. Right. How long do you hold out? And by the way, none of this running backwards and shooting crap. <laughs> I mean, you've you, you it's, right. you've <laughs> got to be close. It's not a matter of keeping that distance. Uh, right. So so I love how the camera does that. Uh, right. So, so now you played the first. You, you you played a little bit of all three of them. I I only came to the second one, and, and and the third one I think is is such a cut above the first two for a couple of reasons that we'll, we'll talk about. Um, you mentioned that the first one was was really difficult. Like they they the first even, one is yeah the first one you get about a half hour in and you have a boss fight maybe forty five minutes in and. I'll tell you, that that first boss is tough, and then they only get tougher after that. And I think I got through the first one after about 15 different tries, and then I got to the second one, and I couldn't get through it. And I was like, okay, this seems like it could be a great game, but this is just – I lack the skills or the patience to learn the skills to keep going with this, which was nice with the second game. They definitely leveled out the learning curve. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what was interesting is after playing the second one, I went back and played the first one, and I actually was able to finish the first one. Ah, right. You'd, you'd, you'd handled I, that I, learning I, curve I, in the second I, I had learned the skills thanks right. to the gentler learning curve in the second one. Now, how much for you of an issue is it that they are so uh, wrapped up in uh, Japanese mythology? That is the thing that amazes me why I like these games, because I am the most Japan cultural, culturally ignorant, and I, it's not a willful thing. It's a, you know, I, I actually enjoy now reading a lot of Japanese history, but I am not a fan of anime music. You know, the whole Hello Kitty thing just baffles me, you know, 
you know, I see some of the uh, funny games that you know people post a YouTube clip of, and I'm like, really, where is that from? I just <laughs> don't understand, you know, where that comes from. So that was actually a huge hurdle for me. And that's why I think that even with all the trappings of Japanese culture and mythology and folklore that goes into these games, essentially these games are fairly Western in, you know, the haunted house setting. Ah, right, right. Just as far as the basic setup. Right. right. The actual gameplay itself, you know, they're going to use Japanese history and Japanese folklore and some Japanese mythology as the backstory for the story of their games, but the actual mechanics and what's going on and the ghosts are very, you know, it's played very straight, very Western, uh, you know, in style. And so to me, that's what made it very easy to get into it, into the games. Well, and I wonder too, Chris, how much of it is the fact that because we don't fully understand Japanese mythology and how an ancient Japanese priest might dress, for instance, that stuff is very unfamiliar to us and looks weird. Right. And that it gives the game a real otherworldly sense, I think, and that it's not a familiar ghost with chains dangling off of him and he's got a sheet draped over him, you know. Right, that definitely helps, I yeah. think. Although there's a, at least one ghost in both the second and third games there are a series of ghosts that have some kind of tall white crowned pointy hat that uh, i've seen dubbed pope ghost yep the pope ghost right (laughs) it's like okay that that you know that kind of takes us out of (laughs) out of things a little that kind of takes you out of the moment a little bit is when pope ghost attacks but then you know broken neck ghost comes after you and you're oh you're broken to, neck ghost wow yeah you're, and you're back to being scared to death yeah. so <laughs> uh so one of the things that i love about the third game uh is the the concept so this is going to be a little spoilery we need uh, we need to right now put the spoiler warning out i think yeah if you if you have not played fatal frame 3 and you think there's ever a time you're going to play it you should fast forward about 10 minutes or so because yeah. uh there there's a one of the beautiful things about fatal frame 3 and why i recommend folks just go straight to fatal frame 3 uh is because of something that it does uh, <laughs> that that makes it special far and away more more special than than the first two games and ultimately far far better than any of the the silent hill games um, so uh, get out of here. Get out of here if you haven't played it. And if <laughs> if you're not going to play it, then fine. Stick around. We'll spoil it at, at your discretion. Um, so, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about what makes this third one special? Okay. Well, the third one, I guess we have to talk a little bit about the story of the third one. Uh, the third game starts off, uh, you're playing, uh, I think, Reka, or Ray is her name. Uh, and she is in a car accident that you see in the opening credits of the game is a cutscene, and it kills her boyfriend. She survives, and she feels guilty because she was driving the car, and she starts having these visions that become nightmares every time she goes to bed where when she goes to sleep, she visits this large mansion compound with a huge, huge outdoor property as well called the Manor of Sleep, and that's M-A-N-O-R not M-A-N-N-E-R, of sleep. And inside the manor of sleep, she gets attacked by these ghosts and finds clues as to what's going on and why she keeps visiting there, why she keeps being forced to visit there in her sleep. And, 
you know, obviously what she discovers is that she wakes up in the morning, she gets covered, she notices a spreading dark blue tattoo-looking bruise. She calls it a bruise. It looks like a tattoo that starts to spread over her body with the obvious implication that once it covers her entire body, she'll be stuck, condemned in the manner of sleep forever and ever to have to be, you know, horrible things, unspeakable things done to her soul by whatever terrible demons live in the heart of that of that house. And just to elaborate, Chris, a bit on what you're saying, the part of the game structure is it's sort of like you play a chapter in the manner of sleep, and then you come out in the real world, and you're, you're doing some research, and that's where right, sort of the exposition right. is. So there's right. the gameplay and the exposition split kind of as well. Right, and you you know, you know when you go to sleep at night, which you have to do to conclude the day ter- part of the turn, that you are going to be in a haunted house and everything is going to be very intense. Um, you know, all this incredible brooding, creepy atmosphere. Uh, you're only armed with a camera. You know, all the things we've already talked about. But when you finish that night turn, you wake up and you're in your modern day apartment. You're in your bedroom and you can save the game there. And it's kind of that's the part of the game where you let out a sigh of relief. Uh, you kind of shake the kinks out of your muscles because you've been all tense while you were playing in the in the haunted house. And like, okay, now we're going to do the X Files part of the game where <laughs> we research clues and you know try to figure out what's going on. Uh, here, you know, you find out that there are other people who are complaint you know, who have studied this phenomenon and you find out about some of the folklore and all that kind of stuff. And you're doing that all that in the daytime and that daytime turn is your safe harbor. Uh, the first two games, there was no safe harbor. It was just intensity piled up. There was no point in the game where a ghost wasn't going to jump out. And as you will discover, if you play the second game, even if you pause the game and leave it paused, eventually there's an Easter egg of a ghost that comes out and just scares the crap out of you. (laughs) If you leave the game paused, and if you play the second game. So the third game, as you're playing it for the first boy, three hours or so, you're thinking, okay, this is my safe haven. This is where I can go. Ooh, okay, we're nothing's going to jump out and get me. And then they, you know, spoiler alert, they pull the rug out from under you. Uh, all of a sudden, things start happening in your safe little haven. Now, uh, now you say all of a sudden, but it, it is fairly gradual. It, it, it is fairly gradual. You and know, I there... noticed that I went back, actually, now that we can do spoilers, uh, I noticed I w- actually went back, pulled up some of my saves, Um one of the things I saw before all hell breaks loose is I was walking through the living room. And by the way, your apartment is really creepy. Even, I mean, everything's modern and new, but everything's very hushed and it's always raining outside. Yeah. And you're like, can we please get some light bulbs in here? Because, you know, none of the, it seems like they're using 10 watt bulbs in all the lamps. Well, and part of that, so Chris, I just want to say. Shadows everywhere and. And I think part of that is a, it's partly like a reflection of the opening theme of loss and bereavement. I mean, it's sure. so good about, about this idea that, that Ray has, uh, you, you know, she's suffering and she's in pain right. and, and she's lonely having lost her boyfriend. So it doesn't so much feel like they're setting it up for a ghost story so much as that they're, they're reflecting her sort of sense of depression and isolation right. and right. loss. 
So, so it's not when we talk about it. Of course, everyone listening is like, "Oh, I bet the ghosts are going to come to her apartment," but it's not quite that obvious when you're right. Hiding. And here's one of the cool things that I saw I, when I went back to do one of my saves. I'm walking through the living room uh, to go outside, and there's going to be a letter out out uh, by where the the mail mailman drops it off in the outdoor hallway outside the apartment itself. And I was walking past the living room, and I stopped, and I said, "Wait a minute." Right there where that closet is, and it's not really a closet. It's got like a curtain hanging down that comes down and leaves about, I guess, about a three-foot gap between the bottom of the curtain and the floor. Is that two bare legs and bare feet? <laughs> no. And I stopped, and I spun, and I took my character over there. And when I got over there, the camera angle changed as I turned to go over there. So it's kind of like, you know, you always hear people talk about in ghost stories where I turned, you know, I turned away for a second and I turned back and it was gone. And so the camera angle changes and I walk back over there and they're gone. But you could have just easily walked by and not caught that, though. You could have walked by and not caught it. (laughs) And you're also sitting there saying to yourself, did I see that or did I not see it? Because it's kind of shadowed and it's not obvious at all. And it's like, is that what I think that was? No, maybe not. No, no. And that's what you're thinking the first time you play it. And then things just kind of gradually build and build. And you're like, they're not really going to do this. And there's almost like a sense of dread as you're playing it where you're thinking, they're not really going to do this to me, are they? They're not really going to. And then, yeah, they're going to do that to me. Great. Thanks, fellas. You know. And what that does, Chris, is it so vividly sets up what I think is crucial to good horror, and that's a sense of vulnerability, is you're in the haunted house, you're, you know there's going to be the combat stuff, and you've got the camera and whatnot, and then and then there's the safe spot where you're doing the exposition. When they start intruding on that, it really does create a sense of vulnerability that you can't get in a game where you're constantly running around with three big heavy guns and you're picking up suits of armor, like fear. Uh, right. It's just that that's such a rare thing that they take they take pains to really create in Fatal Frame 3. Well, and it's very rare, wouldn't you say, that a game actually can affect you, the player, that way, that it can actually play with your emotions and make you feel vulnerable. I mean, that just seems like a very rare thing for a game to try to do and then succeed at doing, you know, where you're actually feeling... You know, some real emotion, which I think is one of the things that Dragon Age does really good to bring up a more current example. Oh, that's an it. Now, now you know, uh, tie that. How, how do you uh, like explain? Um, well, I don't know which origin you've done in the game, but if you play the, I guess everybody ends up at the same spot. I did the human noble origin, mm-hmm. and you end up at that same spot where you have that Braveheart moment in the, you know, in the fairly early in the game. Where, you know, you're down there, you're fight, you see, you know, all these people that you've come to know and who are very likable characters in this bat, in this desperate fight, and it looks like they have a chance to win, and all that needs to happen is the other half of the army needs to attack, and uh, right. the guy controlling the other half of the army goes, "No, we're out, right. we're pulling out," and you, I don't know. If you felt this, but I felt I was pissed. I was like, "You got to be kidding me! I'm going after that guy." Uh, I that, that, and that was actually, you know, an actual real thing. It was like I really liked, you know, two of the dudes that got, or especially one of the dudes, your mentor. You know, I really liked that dude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, 
It's this sense of, yeah, this sense of like personal investment and, and Fatal Frame 3 is so good at at playing on an emotional level, uh, and getting you emotionally connected to this character's loss and her state of mind. Now, the second game does that too. It's got its own construct that does that. It's the sisters or what? uh, That's that's the sister. mm -hmm. And it's weird because when you start out playing the second game, uh, you, there's actually two characters. You control the one, and the other one just kind of follows along behind you, almost like a pet in an MMO game. Uh, you can actually use oh, the yeah. other one as almost like a tank. If you can get the ghost to attack <laughs> the other right. one, you can sit there and just snap photos away like crazy <laughs> while while your twin sister is tanking the ghost for you. <laughs> Uh, you know, which is a perfectly legitimate tactic that I used to get through most of the first part of that game. Um, but she gets in your way. You have to push her out of the way sometimes to get to areas. Her pathing isn't great. And you're like, oh, this is such a pain in the butt to have this <laughs> pet that has bad pathing that occasionally I have to bump out of the way to get out of the way to get to a doorway that I need to get through. And then halfway through the second game, they take her away from you, and you have to try to find a way to save her. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, she that pet isn't there anymore, and you suddenly feel very, very – you have this sense of being totally alone that is completely magnified by the fact that this – you know, kind of inconvenience that you've had to deal with through the first three or four hours of the game is suddenly gone. Right, right. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, I kind of miss having, you know, that stupid little, you know, the the other the other sister around. You know, Chris, this makes me, uh, I, I wish I could talk about it more, but uh, I just finished playing Mass Effect 2, which I, I hate it. I think it's a terrible game. But they, they do... They do really interesting things on on that level, trying to uh, these sort of emotionally manipulative tricks. Uh, right, right. Uh, so I, I love seeing uh, different and different I, games do that. And I love emo- being emotionally manipulated if it pushes you know a game forward, if it pushes right. a story forward. Absolutely. Well, no. So here's one of the problems. Like here's one of the ways that I think that. Fatal Frame is so much better as a horror series than Silent Hill. Silent Hill. Uh, now, have you played many or any of the Silent Hill games? I did not have a PS3 when the first one came out. I played the second one and was kind of mildly disappointed. Okay. And then eventually went back and played the first one when I did have a regular PSX. And even though the graphics are fairly dated... When I played it, I actually definitely liked the loved the first one. Well, and they have the right idea when you're talking about this emotional attachment. Both of them, Silent Hill one and two, both start with, uh, you know, they appeal to a universal feeling of uh, fear of separation. Uh, right, right. They're very much about the psychology of separation from a loved one. And the first one, you're separated from your daughter. The second one, sure. you're separated from from your wife. And and that's a great hook. But I feel that neither game really exploits it very well because it becomes about these terrible puzzles where you have to find a contrived key to a door and you have right. to you have to bash the zombies with the crowbar. Like, like the gameplay does not live up to the promise of the psychology of the opening of the of the game. Uh, whereas Fatal Frame, especially the third one, uh, I just thought followed through so brilliantly with, with yeah, that. Yeah, it's a shame. That to make the payoff so good in the third one, 
I think that there were a lot of very lazy reviewers who played the first two or three hours and went, okay, this is just more of the same. Okay, only now now you have downtime between right. you know, whatever you want to call missions, I guess, or you know your your time in the house of sleep or the manner of sleep. Um, and that's a shame because they nev- it seemed like a lot of people who reviewed the game never got to the real special part of the game. Right, right. I mean, that's an example where you really have no idea what the game is doing unless you get through it farther. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, and by the way, you just now talking about, because for- for- I'd forgotten about the tattoo stuff. Uh, that is also a great foreboding. Like, that's a great omen yes. of, of, of bleeding through because there's the tattooed priest chick. And there's this sense that... Uh, every time she wakes up, the tattoo has spread a little farther, and and it's almost like cancer or something. Well, it's it actually the when I was thinking about that today, it was like it's almost like uh, a a film noir con, you know uh, construction, like you see in a movie like uh, DOA, mm-hmm. you know, where kind of racing against the clock, you know, you're you know in on a very primal level. Yes. You know, you're like, I've got to figure all this stuff out before I'm covered with this tattoo. It's like a game clock. Very good. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You know? And uh, so, yeah, it does. Ed- you know, something else I noticed in when I was kind of playing around with the game and I didn't actually try to play through it all before we did this again. I just wanted to have it jog my memory and things like that. So I kind of loaded up some of my saves over the past week or so. Um one of the things that all three games have done, and I don't know if they do it on purpose. I've got to think they were started doing it on purpose by the third game. Anytime you go to a closed door in the game and open it, well, there's always a dread. I'm about to open this door, and there's something unknown behind it. There's a pause and almost a hitch in <laughs> the animation, and they know that their audience is gamers and as gamers we know anytime you see that hitch it's a you know it's a disk drive going <laughs> access and you're like okay something's coming and 99.9% of the time nothing nothing shows up you know it's like you're fine but then there's that one time where they have to pull you off the ceiling because <laughs> something does is behind that door, and that really was the disk drive hitching to load up, you know, broken neck ghost or something to come and get you. That is so awesome. <laughs> you know, it's like, did they do that on purpose? Because if they did, if they didn't, it's just brilliant the way it actually, you know, it's just a great side effect of uh, needing to access the uh, CD in the drive. Now, now, do you know why these were called? Because I have no idea. Do you know why they were called Project Zero in in Japan? I don't know why they were Project Zero in Japan. I really don't know why they're Fatal Frame in the U.S. Because oh, I can imagine Fatal Frame. I can imagine I, I guess, guys sitting around in an office thinking, "What are we going to call this game?" You know, right? <laughs> right. It's got to have something to do with a camera, and it's got to have a scary word in it. Uh, so right, right. I mean, I'm so, I don't know about you, but I'm so used to saying it that I don't realize how absurd it must sound. Right, People right. haven't heard it before, but yeah, you're like, is that a deadly bowling game? No, no, <laughs> that's not it. Oh my god! Thanks for ruining the title even further. Wow. No, it's not. It's not murder, shooting up a bowling alley or anything like that. <laughs> that's not it. Yeah, and I honestly, I think that the name of the game, both. You know, I think if they'd have left it Project Zero, that would at least be enigmatic enough that it might have sold better in the U.S. Mm. Mm. 
I think the the title of the game just is especially the English title is just so goofy. Oh, they I all have subtitles, don't they? Like one of them's a crimson do. butterfly. What's the oh the tormented or tormented soul? The, tor- what's the tormented is the third one. Yeah. So. Oh. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Ouch. <laughs> now, what do you know about the fourth fatal frame? Well, it's it's a Wii only game. Mm-hmm. Um. And where yeah. can I where can I buy this, Chris? Well, Tom, <laughs> how's your Japanese? <laughs> because unfortunately, Nintendo of America now, I guess, uh, gets to control. I guess for some reason they get to say what gets released. I guess they have the. I don't know if they have the license or whatever, but I know Tecmo is still a developer or the publisher or something. I'm not sure how it works, but anyway, Nintendo of America decided that. They would not release this in the United States. Uh, Nintendo of Europe, it's not being released in Europe. So there, there is no localization of the game other than the original, other than the original Japanese release, which has been out now for, I guess, almost a year now in Wait, Japan. So this is a Nintendo decision and not a Tecmo decision. This is a Nintendo decision. Oh. That's yeah. so annoying. I yeah, just assumed that maybe tech, Tecmo, for whatever reason, didn't want to spare the resources for localization or... That was my original assumption, but, oh. you know, they've said, no, this is Nintendo, just doesn't see any point in going forward with this. But there is hope, Tom. What? There's hope. Actually, I have no... Whatever you're about to say, I have no idea. I'd written off ever being able to play... Okay. Fatal well, there are uh, fans of the game who are bilingual, who are uh, able to read and write fluent Japanese and fluent English, and they have a website at www.beyondthecameraslens.com, and they are doing a fan patch of the game where they are subtitling the game in English. And it will be a patch that can be downloaded to, uh, I think, an SD card that loads into a memory card that you plug into your Wii somehow. Apparently, it all works very easily. I'm not sure what all is required here, but people who are working on it say, oh, no, no, this, this, this will be fairly easy. You don't you have to be smart. You don't have to mod your Wii or anything crazy like that. You know, this, this works. But it will give you English subtitles for the fourth Fatal Frame game. And they're apparently getting fairly close to having a final release candidate done for that. Well, that, that sounds crazy to me. Like, how do they make it interface with the actual game? I, I, that's got to be a huge, huge hurdle for them. And wow. I can only imagine they're only, they're doing it by sheer timing. Um, you know, I don't know how they're doing it. There are, uh, videos up on YouTube if you, uh, you know, put, uh, you know, English translation or English patch, uh, Fatal Frame 4 into the YouTube search engine. You'll pop up, uh, they've actually done their own trailer showing the captions, uh, the subtitles. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm gonna give it a shot. That is awesome news. Now, what, what's the, what's the Earl again, Chris? Beyond the lens, beyond the? Uh, beyond the cameras lens. Okay. Dot com. Good to know. Good to know. And yeah. now, now I don't know if you know this, but the reason, I mean, it's a fatal frame, so but above and beyond being a fatal frame, I am dying to see this because uh, Grasshopper is a studio that, that includes a fellow named Goichi Suda, who did the Killer7 game, for instance. Oh, right, okay. Uh, and sure. he made that. Like, yeah, they're, they're I, I the that's that, a favorite of yours. And, and they're the folks that made Fatal Frame 4. Uh, okay, wow. new. So I, I'm curious, good Lord, what could Suda51, that's the name that he works under, what, what could he do with a Fatal Frame game? Uh, sure. 
So I'm, I'm curious to see that. Well, that's that's good. To, that's great news. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, you use your Wiimote as a flashlight, uh, and I guess the other controls are just the controls that are on the Wiimote itself. Right. Right. So. Okay. But, uh, yeah, you know, there's hope. Well, now uh, I am about to ask you, Chris, a totally random question. It okay. has nothing to do with Fatal Frame. It's nothing to do with managing a restaurant. It's totally out of the blue. Great. And by the way, I wanted to say that I think I nailed the actual answer to last week's question in the th- in the th- in that particular thread about the the, the prickly fruit. Yes, I'm absolutely positive that you're talking about sweet gum trees. <laughs> oh, that's right. You've been the one hitting those little uh, those little prickly things. No, being from Arkansas, I step on those all the time. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm well aware. Yeah, we, when we would be playing, you know, football or something in the backyard, you would get tackled and land on those yes. things. <laughs> and oh. you're right about the younger they are, the the more difficult. They oh yeah, get older, once the once they get they get soft once yeah. they can sit on the ground. <laughs> Uh, but by the way, for a lot of these questions, there is no actual answer, and I'm, I'm not even sure I was thinking of a – Well, there, there, there wasn't an actual answer to that because you had to say what they tasted like. And... Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you've never <laughs> eaten one of those, I hope, because you're not supposed no. to. <laughs> no, 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 no. Although I have to say, aren't because they're called – did you say sweet gum trees? They are sweet gum trees, and that always intrigued me as a child because my grandma had a sweet gum tree. She had a couple of them in her yard, and – I'm going to say that in my six-year-old, five-year-old mind, that the thought of trying to figure out a way to eat one probably definitely went through my head. I don't understand why you got to go to six-year-old or five-year-old mind, because in my 43-year-old mind, I'm thinking <laughs> there's got to be a reason it's called sweet gum tree. I, I should try one of these. <laughs> there's got to be a way to break those things open and get to the soft candy center. Yeah, I just have to know when it's ripe. That's all. You know? Okay, well, this this actual question this week does have what I feel is the correct answer, but it's going to be strictly uh, subjective. It's a personal preference. Uh, you, you may – I think – I always forget you're a movie guy, right? Oh, I, I love movies. I, I I know enough to know that I'm not an expert, but I love reading the movie threads. Okay, so you're gonna you're you're probably gonna have an answer for this. Okay. Here's the random question of the week. You ready? Sure. Hope Davis or Laura Linney? Ooh, good question. I'm gonna go with Laura Linney. Mm, no, that's the wrong answer. I'm sorry. <sighs> <laughs> now, oh. I only say that because for the longest time, I never really actually confused them. But if you were to ask me right, know, right. which actress played this, I would actually have to stop and think for a minute. Uh, Laura Linney was in You Can Count On Me, correct? No, that was Hope Davis. No, that was Laura Linney. Come on. See, I'm lying to you, but you believed me even for a second. Like it was, <laughs> It's entirely plausible that you could have confused them, you thought. But that, that's, that's how I'm able to distinguish them, actually, is I, I really enjoyed that movie, so – and, and they're both tremendous actresses, oh, I think. Fantastic. They're uh, both wonderful. And I'm not even sure they really look alike that much. Like, I don't know why I would have that confusion about them. <laughs> I guess they can play similar roles, but, uh. Well, they both, and they both have the, uh, long, longish, straightish hair, blonde hair. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think Hope Davis is probably the hotter of the two. That's interesting that you say that, Chris, because here's what's behind me asking this right now. I have seen Hope Davis in a couple of movies recently, and she was in the second season of an, season of an HBO series called In Treatment. And she right. is so incredibly sexy, which is kind of odd. Yeah. They're both very, very attractive, but there's something that is so incredibly sexy about Hope Davis. And I'm specifically thinking of... Uh, a, a little scene movie called The Nines 
not to be confused with Nine, Nine, or District Nine. Uh, it's, a, it's a movie from a few years back called The Nines, where she plays several different roles. It's kind of an anthology of different... Uh, it's a weird movie. But right. but one of them, she is... And she even has a musical number with... Uh, is it a Patsy Cline song called That's All There Is? Is That All There Is? I forget who sings that. Uh, but, um, yeah, okay, go ahead. But she does a musical number based on this, and she's wearing like this low-cut sundress, and she just looks so voluptuous and... And I was like, wow, look at Hope Davis. When did she get so hot? And I, you know, we don't have to go into locker room talk. They're both very attractive. <laughs> right, right. Well, the, the amazing thing about Hope Davis, she was in American Splendor. Oh, that's right. All mousy, all mousified. Well, she was supposed to look mousy. And I remember watching American Splendor <laughs> and her character kind of didn't work for me because I'm like, she's kind of hot yeah like nope nope the bouncy thing the glasses it's gonna take more than that yeah no, and honestly the glasses i was just like she's even sexier with the glasses that that's actually working for me more that she's wearing the glasses so. okay here you go chris so who played uh uh john adam's wife in that hbo series that was laura linney nope hope davis no, that was <laughs> I can't do Come it to you now. So you're on to me. <laughs> okay, well, if if those of you listening, if you have an opinion one way or the other, and you will win the free a free game on the platform of your choice, but I should warn you, it will probably be a terrible game. Uh, uh, all you have to do is post. Now, this thread is going to be in the movies forum. It's going to be titled Hope Davis or Laura Linney. Post an answer, and in your answer, you have to include a movie that neither of them is in as evidence for your choice. Excellent. So I, I expect lots of people saying, uh, I don't think either of them was in that. So post your oh, answer in that. Long Davis as you... was great in Lawrence of Arabia. When she was a little kid, exactly. She was one of sure. the girls. Little known fact. That, and yeah. then when she was in my dinner with Andre. Oh, uh, as the waiter. She was the waiter who fills their, their, their water glass. And sleuth. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to come up with all the movies I have that have no women in them. So, oh, very good. Now, come on, are there are no women, and there's got to be women in Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, I think so, but I think they're all covered with burkas. So. <laughs> and my dinner with Andre. Come on, there's got to be some women. Like it's a crowded restaurant. Surely there's someone. Here, here you go, Glengarry Glen Ross. Right, favorite okay, Pope Davis go. performance, Glengarry Glen Ross. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Chris, thank you for hanging out with me today. That was great Absolutely. to talk about. It was fun. Uh, and a lot of a lot of times, folks want to talk about games that I don't really know well, and that's cool. But it's been awesome getting to relive uh, Fatal Frame Three. That I just I adore what they did with that game, and I'm so glad there's people like you out there who like it as well. And it, it is still findable. It's actually much less expensive than it used to be. Uh, it isn't quite the collector's item anymore. Uh, well, I guess the original may be. But if you look hard enough on the net, you can find copies of Fatal Frame 3 for, you know, in the 35 to $45 range. And if you have a PS2, I strongly recommend that you pick it up. And, I, yeah, I, I think we would both agree uh, that it holds up very well. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay. So uh, next week, uh, those of you listening, join us. We will have Jupiter Jones. I don't know if that's his real name. We will find out. And he will be discussing uh, Roller Coaster Tycoon. So come on back in a week. And Chris, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you.